All right, well, we are go- going to jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I invite you to open there or to tap your way there, as we often say on any device, if that's your preferred method. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've been in this series uh, really studying the what does it look like to be Christians and live in community together in a world that doesn't necessarily believe what we believe or live the way we live. And so Paul is writing to a very similar community in a town called Corinth. And so that's what this book is talking about. And we're really wrapping this up. We have uh, next week, we're going to kind of pick up some loose end topics. And then the, the final week after that to just kind of wrap up the whole series. So that's where we're at. But we're in chapter 15 here today. And so we're going to get right at it. You know, chapter 15 really is in, in some ways, it's the end of the flow of thought for this book, for this letter. Uh, 16 that we'll look at in a couple weeks is kind of just his final thoughts and, and, and salutations to people. But 15 is the, the culmination or the wrap, wrapping up of what he's been telling and teaching the church. And it's really interesting that it starts, though, the letter in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Paul writes and he says, that for us, we're t- teaching you and preaching the message of the cross. And the message of the cross, the fact that Jesus came and lived and died on the cross for us, that God in flesh, that message is foolishness to those who have not received it. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's one of those things that, why would, it, why would the creator God come to serve his creation? Why would somebody forgive people who don't deserve forgiveness. Why would somebody sacrifice for those who haven't earned it? it? This is foolishness, this message. Why would someone of a position of power humble and give up, humble himself and give up that power for the sake of those with less? It's foolishness. And so Paul starts this letter and says, this message of the cross is foolishness to those who have not yet received it, but to those that believe. We've learned that it's the very power of God, that this foolish message is actually the very thing that has the power to transform our lives. It's the very thing that has the power to breathe life into our relationships, into our marriages, and into the way we parent our kids and work in the workplace. It's the very thing that transforms us and and, and gives us the power to break addiction and to experience life apart from all of those things. That though it sounds like foolishness, when we truly embrace this message and allow Jesus to transform us, we find it is the power of God. It is a power that takes those who are at odds and enemies of God and welcomes them in. And so Paul begins this whole letter with that message of the cross and the power that's found in it. And then he kind of talks about how we should live together as Christians with love being the central motivating factor. And then in chapter 15, he talks about the resurrection. It's almost as if he says, hey, I want you to understand church, that the whole power in the cross is because there is a resurrection. That if it, our story ends with the cross, that's not a very good story. And we looked at that a little bit last week, but if our story ended on Friday with Jesus hanging on the cross, being placed in the grave, Paul says, we are to be pitied among all men because we follow a dead leader who was just a good moral example of giving up his life for someone. There was no power in it. 
But because of the resurrection, there's power. In fact, in chapter 15 at the beginning that we looked at last week, there was a few statements that Paul goes through and he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christ, or if resurrection isn't real, then Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. This is all worthless. Why are we here on a Sunday morning if he didn't rise? If the resurrection didn't happen, then we are false witnesses. If the resurrection didn't happen, he said, then our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. How would you like that as your message every Sunday to start off your week? Welcome to Seacoast. Jesus didn't rise. You're still in your sins. Get over it. Work harder. If the resurrection didn't happen, then the dead have perished. Those who've gone on before us. It's over. It's nothing more. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we are to be pitied among all people. Because we're wasting our time and effort And all of the first Christians were dying for nothing, for a lie that they were tricking the world about. So he started with that last week as Matt taught us through it and said that the resurrection, it it proves something about Jesus. Because he rose, it proves that he was who he said he was, that his words can be trusted, that his ways should be followed, that we should pay attention because he rose. As Matt taught also, the resurrection means that We have a new identity that is secure in Christ. Because he rose, because that confirmed who he was. And if you didn't hear last week, I encourage you to listen to it as to kind of talk through some of the other things that the resurrection confirms about us. But it means that our identity is secure. We are now as followers of Jesus in Christ. And Matt used a great imagery I loved with the paper in, a, in the middle of a book and said it's as if we are in Christ and where this book goes, that paper goes. So as Christ is raised up, spiritually speaking, we are resurrected people living a resurrected life. And though we still struggle in the flesh, though we're still tempted in sin, that's not what's true of us. What's true of us is we are raised up in Christ. We are in Christ now. And that is good news that we celebrate. Anyone with me on that? So that is how Paul starts chapter 15. The rest of chapter 15, he says, because we now have this new identity, because we believe in the resurrection, because this confirms the power of the cross, now, here's some thoughts for you, church. So that's what we're going to get to. So pray with me as we start. Lord Jesus, I pray that these words would be yours. And Lord, though we can't cover every single verse here, I pray that we would discover truth that helps us understand you more and know who we are in you. And Lord, set us free to live a life uh, that you've designed us to live. So we thank you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to pick it up here uh, a few verses down in verse 21. Paul is writing, he says, So for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. He explains it now. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Each in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Goes on to say, then in the end, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power, Jesus must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So he starts off here in this section, and the first thing that we see is 
Jesus, or Paul is writing and saying, hey, because of the resurrection, we have a, there's a new humanity. He starts with this example, and he says, through one person, through Adam, and this was, he's referring to Genesis chapter 1 through 3, where the, our scriptures begin, and you have a story of Adam and Eve, and they represent the rest of mankind. And Paul writes, and he says, through Adam, sin enters the world. So we have this part of our humanity is that sin is part of our existence. That we had a choice to trust God in his ways or to take some things into our own hands. Adam and Eve said, Lord, uh, we kind of trust it, but let's see if it works out on our own. And sin enters in. Now for any of you who blame Adam and Eve and say it's not fair that I'm sinful because of them, just ask your mom, are you a sinful person or were you ever if she says yes, then you're also sinful, so don't worry about Adam and Eve. You've, you've done it as well. So, okay, no response to that. Good, we'll, we'll wake up. Then ask your spouse. That will tell you. We are all sin, sinful. It's part of our humanity. So Paul's writing and saying, hey, Adam represents humanity, but Christ represent, represents a new humanity, that there's new life. Because of the resurrected Lord, if we are found in Christ, there's a new, something new that's true about you and me. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11, when Paul's writing, I have it on the screen for you. He says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his, holy, through his spirit who dwells in you. Catch that. If we're raised up in Christ, that same spirit who rose Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. How many of you started off the day reminding yourself of that truth? How many of you started off the day, you looked into the mirror, and you said, wow, the spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in this thing. And if we started and really believed that every day throughout the day, how would we live? But I think many of us start off the day and we look in the mirror and we say, wow, look at those wrinkles. How am I going to get those dark circles from under my eye? Why can I grow more hair on my back than my head? What, what's going on here? What, Lord, I mean, why am I in such a bad mood today? Why do the people who live in my house bug me? Why is my neighbor so annoying? Well, this is how we often start our day. Well, I have so many things going through my mind. How am I going to get through this day? And as Christians, we forget to remind ourselves of this fundamental truth that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in us. That changes things. That changes how we face the day. It changes how we face the circumstances that pop up. And we can look in that mirror and say, you've got everything you need to face this day. In fact, you have everything you need to be a, a light, to bring hope, to change the narrative. Wow, what I see in the mirror, that is everything anyone could need. Now, some of you might say that, but remember, you're talking about the Spirit of God in you. That's what you're looking at. That's what the world needs. So Paul reminds us and says, there's a new humanity in Christ. You're raised up with him. That same Spirit 
is a part of who you are. You're not your old self. You're not your old self. You are somebody with the Holy Spirit of God in you. Say that to yourself. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Start your days with that truth. And now I want you to picture what would happen if we all believed that. What would happen if we actually kind of embrace that truth? Because as Paul continues his argument, he says, and Jesus is going to rule and reign until ultimately he hands all things over to his Father in heaven. So in other words, as we are raised up in Christ, we are asked to demonstrate the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives, which we can do if the Spirit's in us. The way we live should be a demonstration of what it looks like when we believe that Jesus is Lord and not anybody else. How many of us live as if Jesus is Lord at all times? And we believe that he's on his throne. See, that's the argument, this is the thought that he has here. We are new creations and we represent the rule and reign of Jesus. Now, as a church, a church is designed to be a community of people existing together, demonstrating the kingdom of God. People should see us interacting and say, whatever that is, that's a foretaste of eternity. That's a foretaste of heaven. Whatever that is, I want it. And if we really embraced this and lived out and demonstrated the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, among each other, in our, the way we interact in the community, we wouldn't have enough seats in any churches across our cities. Because it would draw people and they'd say, I want that. But I'm afraid... There's many times when I, and my guess is many of you, give people a picture of Christianity that's kind of like, yeah, I believe, and it changes my Sunday morning. But do they look at you and say, whatever is changing you, I want to be changing me. One of the most compelling things is a community of people transformed and living out the rule and reign of God. Why do we as a community as an organization, participate in some of the things we do? Why do we care for the immigrants in our community and, and tutor them on Mondays and Wednesdays after school? One of the reasons is because we believe, we believe the rule and reign of Jesus means there's justice for the poor. We want to take care of them. We want to help break the cycle of poverty. We want to lean into that. Why do we care about the homeless and the underemployed and support some of the services in our community? Why do we send volunteers to CRC? We do this because the rule and reign of Jesus says we want to bring justice and peace and we want to bring comfort to those even if they don't deserve it. That's not in our minds. Our minds are, we are transformed by Jesus. He's on his throne, so that changes the way we live. Is anyone with me on that? This compels us to look at people who believe differently than we believe, who live differently than we live, and instead of pointing fingers and say, oh, this is all the ways you're wrong. If you don't think this happens, just go on Facebook for a little while and look at how people interact with each other. Or even better, next door, my favorite. <laughs> it's a vice in my life. My wife keeps saying, why don't you delete that app? And I'm like, I just, just want to see humanity. <laughs> I have not created a pseudonym yet for it, but I mean to because I just there's so many things I want to say. <laughs> but why can we actually, instead of being offended and angry and fighting back about everything, actually lean in and say, you know what, we want you to know Jesus. I don't care if you agree. I don't care if you live differently. 
we're going to love you. We're going to embrace you. We want you to experience a life-giving truth that comes from Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose again. That's our posture. We can do that because we believe Jesus is on his throne, and when he's on his throne, we don't have to be. That is one of the best truths I've ever learned in my life, that I don't have to be God. But sometimes we fail with that. As you know, uh, you know, often when you get to be a pastor, you get to share all the times you fail. So that's fun. You guys get to find all the weaknesses in my life. But even, you know, uh, I coach. I often talk about my coaching. And um, even recently, I had an instance where we were uh, at practice and a ball went out of the, the field and, and hit a car. And uh, the person wasn't very happy that our ball hit the car and, and came pretty upset. And it, totally understandable to be frustrated. Um, that there was uh, some damage to the car and, and was really angry at me and, and wanted to know why this happened. And, you know, I tried to give some solutions, but wasn't able to, you know, let me just say that the rule reign of Jesus was, was strong with me for a short time. <laughs> and then I just said, okay, Lord, hang on a second. <laughs> and and um, if, if that was you and you're here today, welcome to Seacoast. So glad you're here. Uh, we love you. <laughs> but, but after a while and after, you know, some demands and some yelling and stuff and, and accusations, I just, you know, I, I, I know my posture, although I, I didn't, I, it was much different than 20 years ago, but still, it wasn't like, oh man, she, this person probably walked away saying like, I bet Christ is alive in that person. Probably not. So we have those moments, right, where, where we slip back. But the goal is that we, the more and more we surrender to Jesus, it just becomes natural to be people who are compelling in the, the way that we surrender to the Spirit. So Paul starts that, hey, you have a new humanity in Christ. As he goes on, let's pick it back up. Uh, verse 29. This, I'm going to mention this because a lot of you have asked questions about it. We're going to spend just 30 seconds on it, I think. So Paul says, so there is a resurrection. You need to believe there's a resurrection. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? You guys don't want, let's just move on. Uh, what? No, just kidding. This is a, this is a perplexing verse. Uh, there's anywhere between 35 to 45 different explanations that scholars have offered for this. So let me just tell you, there's no clear answer uh, except for a few things. This is the only place it's ever mentioned in Scripture. It is not part of the teachings of the early church. Um, this is not something that was normal in the early church. It's something that somehow pro- something was going on in Corinth that some people were participating in what we'll call probably it's a proxy baptism where there was a Christian who died before they were able to baptize, be baptized and people said, oh, well, I'm going to be baptized in their place because they weren't baptized. Um, this is not a prescription of how to worship, and Paul doesn't condemn it or condone it. He just says, if there's a resurrection from the dead, or if there is no resurrection, why would you even do this? So apparently some of them are questioning the resurrection, and they're participating in this proxy baptism. So he's just saying, train of thought here. It doesn't make any sense. Now there, are, there is at least one faith that practices this baptism for the dead, we have no biblical reason to think that this is something that God has instructed us to do or because what saves us isn't being baptized, it's Jesus. And so a baptism is a ritual, it's our way of proclaiming that we've died with Christ and we're raised up with him. 
Okay, clear? If you have any other questions, uh, Matt will be able to answer it after the service for you. <laughs> Verse 30. So why, if the resurrection doesn't exist, Paul then goes on, he says, why also are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brothers, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, that I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at, beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we will die. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. He's actually quoting a, a, a Greek philosopher of their time. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for there's some who have no knowledge of God. In other words, if those with no knowledge of God see you living your life as if it's, there's nothing beyond this grave, what is that communicating to them? And then he goes on and says, but some of you ask, well, how are the dead raised? What kind of bodies do they come? And he goes and gives some examples, and I want you to just jump down to verse 42. He says, there is a resurrection from the dead. We're sown with, with perishable bodies, the bodies we live in now, but we're raised with imperishable bodies. There's, a, there's something new that will exist in eternity. We're sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. We're sown with weakness, raised in power. We're sown with a natural body, raised with a spiritual one. If there is a natural one, there's also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last man became a life-giving spirit. So Paul goes on with a, a few thoughts here and saying, first of all says, hey, if there's no resurrection, let's just think through some of the options. And he gives three options, really. The first option, he says, is if there's nothing beyond this grave, then eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is what we call heathenism, hedonism. It doesn't matter what you do if this life is all there is, so enjoy it, live any way you want. Who cares? Who cares? You're going to die, die. It doesn't matter how you live. He says, no, but there is a resurrection. But then he talks about, in a resurrection, you'll be raised up with a new body. And he's connecting, and he's really dealing with, in Corinth, they started to wrestle with this um, early Christian uh, struggle, which was a belief that said all spirit is good and all flesh is bad. So it didn't matter what your flesh did as long as your spirit was good. And Paul's saying, no, it's connected. It's interconnected. The spiritual and physical body is connected. And what he's addressing is what we'd call Christian hedonism. It's a disconnect from how you live your physical life and what you believe in the spiritual world. He's saying, no, it matters. As one scholar said, uh, he called this a disembodied spiritual life. A life that says, whatever, this body doesn't matter. When I'm raised with something totally, or when in heaven, all it is is like our souls floating around. So who cares how we lived? I believed in Jesus. Now my soul's floating around with him. But he's saying, no, 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 there's, there's something, there's a new kind of body. It's different, but we're raised up. There's a different kind of existence that we're going to have, and there's a connection between the soul and body. Your soul and body exist together. And this is the way we can fully enjoy our existence in the, fully, uh, the fullest possible way is when there's a connection between our physical world, what we do, and what we believe. That's why sometimes we encourage you and challenge you, even in the act of singing songs in worship, now, I know for some of you, you're reserved, that's okay, we live on the coast in San Diego, we're all mellow, we get that. But why sometimes we encourage you, maybe engage your physical body as you worship, as your spirit worships. 
There's something, we, we believe that our life is connected. What we do is connected. Now, it doesn't make you more holy if you are engaged physically, but try it sometimes. Some of you might just need to start like this. Raise your hands like right here, you know. <laughs> just start small. That's okay. But the idea is, no, we, we don't have a disembodied spiritual life. That what we do in the flesh matters. It's connected, and it's all part of being transformed. We're living and acting as if we're demonstrating the rule and reign of Christ. I love how uh, Major Ian Thomas says it in this quote. I have the quote for you here. And he uses two ideas. He calls it to be in Christ is the spiritual. We're now, our, as we talked about last week, our identity is in Christ. So there's a spiritual something new about us. But then he says, then there's also this reality that Christ is in you. So that has to do with what's right now. And now look at this. To be in Christ, the spiritual, that is your redemption. Saves you from your sin. But for Christ to be in you, that is your sanctification. That means that's what changes you, actually transforms you. Changes how you interact to someone who is upset that a baseball hit their car. (laughs) Sanctification, Christ in you is what changes that. To be in Christ, that makes you fit for heaven. But for Christ to be in you, that makes you fit for earth. I love that. To be in Christ, that changes your destination. You you have eternity. You have heaven with Jesus on your mind. To be in Christ, it changes your destination. But for Christ to be in you changes your destiny. What you're made for, how you live. I love how C.S. Lewis uh, talked about it. You know, sometimes we think, all we think about is how great it will be in heaven. And I think that's great. I think we should long to have sin and death and sickness and all this stuff swallowed up and to be face-to-face with God with all of the barriers removed. That's something I look forward to. But if that's it, if we're just sitting and waiting for that day, we're missing out on the life God's given us. C.S. Lewis said it this way, some of you are so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Think of that. You're so heavenly-minded, all you think about is, oh, one day, that you're no earthly good. And that's a disembodied Christian life. As Ian Thomas says it, Christ in you makes you fit for earth. We, believe it or not, are the very people that this world needs. I'm sure you hear that on the news all the time. We just need a bunch of Christians. (laughs) The truth is, the world needs a bunch of real Christians who have Christ in us, living out his ways. If they saw that, they would say, that is what we need. Paul goes on. Almost done. We're going to skip a few more verses. He goes on in uh, verse 54. He leaves us with some hope. Because the truth is, sometimes we read this and we think, yeah, but Ryan, you should see my life. People around me are dying. Maybe I'm sick and struggling. I'm battling with depression. I'm battling with anxiety. My kids are off the rails. My parents are off the rails. My boss is an idiot. No one who works here said that, right? (laughs) We might think of all those things. We feel the pain of this world and say, Ryan, I I want Christ to live in me, but there's still brokenness. I can't erase that. Well, Paul knows that, and he leaves us with a future hope that he wants us to know. He says in verse 54, when the perishable have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. In other words, he's saying sin brought this, all this pain that we experience. And the power of sin is the law. We, ex- we see how powerful sin is when we look at the law and realize how fallen we are. Verse 57, don't miss this. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that what you do is not in vain. He reminds us of this new victory that we'll experience. He's quoting Hosea chapter 13, verse 4. A prophet, Hosea, says this. God's speaking. He says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O death, is your destruction? One day God's going to redeem it all. Thanks be to God that our victory is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. When he rose from the dead, he put a final explanation mark, ex- exclamation mark on his work, the cross, and said, we're living for something more, with a future hope and glory. And all your failures aren't going to erase what I did. Oh, death, you've been swallowed up. Oh, sin, you no longer have power. It is done and finished in Jesus Christ. That is what's true of you today. That is what's true of you. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up as we end with one final song. And as we end with this song, let's let it just be a reminder for us, a proclamation, words that we want to sing to remind ourselves and one another. That all of this stuff is great, but the truth is, Christ is enough. The Spirit of God in you is enough. It's not your efforts and your toil and your your labor to become a better person and to work your way back to God. None of that. You You don't have to do it. Christ is enough for you today. Christ is enough for your parents who don't know Jesus. Christ is enough for your kids who don't know Jesus. Christ is enough for your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. Christ is enough for all the people on Nextdoor app. <laughs> we believe it, we proclaim it. And that's the truth that transforms us, changes us, and I believe that's the truth that transforms and changes our world, and that's the kind of church we want to be. I want to see your friends and your coworkers know Jesus this year. I want to see that. I'm praying for that. I hope you are. I want to see the power of the Spirit living through you to make a difference in your community. That's what we're praying for, and I believe that can happen. So I want to ask you to stand with me as we pray as a a sign of solidarity, as we sing one final song. Let this be our anthem as a church, that what Christ has done is enough. And if this is all new to you, I want you to know that there's a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And you're here today hearing this because he wants to welcome you into the family. And maybe you've been running, but you ran up, ended up in the wrong spot today because he wants you to hear his truth. So let's pray and sing this last song. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that even in all the times that we misrepresent you, all the times our lives don't demonstrate a belief in your rule and your reign, all the times when our lives don't reflect a belief in the power of the resurrection, 
God, in all those times, you still love us. You still hold us tight. You haven't left us, Lord. And so, Father, we proclaim this final song to you, but Lord, let it be not just words, but Lord, let it be the echoes of our heart, our proclamation, that you are all we need, and you are all our world needs. So we thank you, we give you this time, and receive our praise now, in Jesus' name, amen.